0: You're
1: in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets. How much you want to use each day or week, it'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. Water Water conservation is very important to me. I bet it is to many of you as well. That's why I have high Sierra showerheads in my house, and I'm really happy that they're a supporter of this podcast. They carry the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency, and they use 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. The model I use runs at only a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, patented, that nobody else has, it maximizes efficiency of water and energy, but doesn't compromise on performance. You still get a very strong shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com.
0: You're in the Water Loop.
1: Welcome to Water (laughs) Loop. This is Travis. For this episode, I get to talk about one of my absolute favorite places, New Mexico. Uh, I am joined by Laura Paskus. She has been writing about New Mexico's natural resources and communities since 2002 as an assistant editor of High Country News, a radio producer at KUNM. Managing Editor of Tribal College Journal, freelancer for a variety of publications, uh, serving as a correspondent for PBS's New Mexico in Focus, and she has a book out at The Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. So you've been writing uh, and talking about New Mexico's environment for about 20 years. Uh, Lucky you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> lucky me i've gotten obsessed with a few particular issues and can't seem to let go of them
1: <laughs> yeah well one of the things i enjoy you know following you on social media is your enthusiasm for the place you live and and its environment comes through you know you're you uh, are not afraid to to hide that and it's, it'd be hard to because new mexico is a spectacular place uh, it is it really is and having
0: like joy for the place you live and write about <laughs> is important i think
1: New Mexico, how would you describe the water situation or the, the presence of water, the waterscape, the hydrology of New Mexico?
0: Yeah, we're an extremely arid state. We have three major rivers. Um, you know, we have maybe, maybe I should say four major rivers, the Rio Grande, the Pecos River, um, the Canadian, and then the Gila. And these, these aren't giant rivers rivers by East Coast standards um, and, and the Rio Grande and the Pecos for the past 20 years or so have pretty consistently dried each summer. So um, we're a snow melt driven system and as the climate warms and we see less snow melt and we see warmer and warmer temperatures that affects our surface water. We also have groundwater resources, but we've been pumping them pretty um, intensely and deliberately since probably the 1950s. And so we also have some pretty serious concerns about groundwater resources in the state as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, it's an amazing place. I mean, when I've gone hiking there, you know, you have these dry arroyos, right? Those are like the stream beds. And I guess just when you actually get those heavy rain events, those will, those will get water in them. In the meantime, they're kind of great pathways up into the mountains and everything. Um, how, how has water in New Mexico and management approaches to it changed in the past two decades that you've been really intensely covering it?
0: Unfortunately, a lot of things have not changed. Um, You know, we've known about climate change this entire time, known that it was going to be a threat to New Mexico's water supplies. And it's really only in the past couple of years that there have been serious conversations about climate change and the future of water in the state, like the, the realistic future versus the future that we want or um, hope for. Um, unfortunately, in New Mexico, we also, in the intervening years of a Republican governor who, while not an outright climate denier, um, was was um, uh, aggressively anti-regulation, anti-environment, and, and anti-climate change um, in terms of mitigation or adaptation. So state agencies were really hampered by that for eight years.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I I think that's happened in a number of, of states, uh, around the country, or even at the federal level where you have someone in elected office who, uh, you know, is not a, uh, believer in climate change and, and sets policy back in a big way as a, as a result. Um, well, so you, you put out a book really all about climate change. Was that like, is it like a compilation almost of your 20 years of work? Is it something that you spent a few int- intense years researching and writing? Um, you know, what's what's really the genesis and the, and the content of that book?
0: Yeah, so it kind of looks back on about 15 years worth of reporting. And my goal with the book was to take Um, a bunch of reporting that I've done over the years and put it together in kind of a narrative way that takes general readers through the state and helps people understand the causes of climate change, um, the impacts of climate change here in New Mexico, and also some of the political background that, um, you know, unfortunately really affects policy. So my hope was... um, that general readers who are interested in New Mexico, interested in climate change, interested in water, um, would come along with me and learn some <laughs> stuff. Uh,
1: there's a lot of stories that get picked up, uh, you know, at, at the higher level, national level, about the Colorado River Basin, right? And and drought in Colorado and Arizona and California. Um, you know, you don't hear as much about New Mexico. Um, why do you think that is? The the climate impacts are hitting there. Is it there's less people, or what, what? What are your what are your thoughts on that?
0: That's such a great question, and I agonize over this all the time because the the Rio Grande Basin and the Colorado River Basin share so many similarities climatically. Um, snow melt driven systems, the same um, warming and drying patterns hold true across both. I think the Colorado River gets a lot more attention for a couple of reasons. One, it's bigger. It serves more people. There are more states involved. There's more powerful entities involved, including, you know, really powerful states like California and cities like San Diego. But also in the past few years, there's been so much foundation attention on the Colorado River. The Walton Family Foundation has really made a huge investment in, um, you know, sorts of like collaborative solutions and media coverage and, you know, sorts of like what I think of are really positive things in terms of attention on the serious situation in the Colorado River. But you New know, Mexico, Texas, Colorado, the Rio Grande Basin is very much neglected. And I think oftentimes what happens when we do get national coverage Um, I've seen this happen a number of years where I'll be reporting on the 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 river drying in the summer and then you know that will pique the interest of a national reporter who sees that and then the New York Times does a big story and there's national attention on it, you know, for a minute and then that (laughs) evaporates.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's very interesting. Um, this, you know, the way you describe it, this is a, still a big, a big area. Um, and, the, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are the, it seems like there's a, a crisis point in the Colorado almost, you know, they're, they're really having, you know, this aridification of the basin and, and looking at their water levels. Is it as dire um, in New Mexico for, you know, what's outside of the Colorado River Basin?
0: I'll be honest, I'm really worried about this year. So last year we had a close to normal snowpack from November to February, and yet we had, um, I think it was by May, we had only 20% of the historical average of the Rio Grande flowing through Albuquerque. Um, The river was dry um, by mid. Or uh, the end of May Mm. and there were about 50 miles dry through the summer. We had a really warm fall and saw drying spreading into areas that wasn't really common and so we now have a situation where the reservoirs are very low stream flows are low and we're in a La Nina pattern for this winter. We just had some really nice snow this past week which will be great for bumping things up but we'll likely see a warmer-than-average spring and early runoff. And I am a little bit worried about the Rio Grande this year and the people who rely upon it, especially farmers, Um, just because the system is so stressed already. The reservoirs are low, stream flows are low, soils are parched. Um, And so I think this year could potentially be a really um, shocking year for people. We had a shocking year in 2018 and we had, you know, a nice runoff in 2019, although the river still dried. Mm
1: -hmm. 2020
0: was challenging and and this year um, has me feeling a little queasy, Mm -hmm. to be honest.
1: So the challenging years are are outnumbering the the good years, it sounds like, which is uh, a scenario playing out elsewhere as, as well. Yeah, I, I just was, you know, I was looking for the first time when I was preparing to talk to you and at New Mexico and the fact that you have the Colorado River watershed, you know, as your Western part, you've got the Rio Grande in the middle, and you even have the mi- feed into the Mississippi. Um, how much do people talk about that fact that, A, you even feed into the Mississippi, right? And then you've got three of the, these kind of major, important, iconic rivers all, uh, all involved in your state
0: yeah honestly, we don't talk much about the Canadian River really? in, in New Mexico um, and so um, it is important for water supplies in the eastern part of the state and they're mm-hmm. planning to build a pipeline from one of the reservoirs there but really the focus is is on the the Rio Grande the San Juan which is in the Colorado River Basin and then the Pecos.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I always remember one, I think maybe the first time I ever flew into Albuquerque, you know, the rivers there, and it was the time of year when all the cottonwoods are yellow, and it was just like this ribbon, this beautiful ribbon of yellow uh, right there. And, uh, and those, those trees, I, I totally fell in love with them then. And, but you, I love how you can just tell where the water is, you know, based on, on that type of thing. So, so cool. And then another trip I was up by Taos and there's that big bridge. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. And what, what is that over? Is that the Rio Grande there also?
0: Yep, uh, it is.
1: Yeah. So, so such an amazing place. Um, a, a little bit of the news recently is that I think the uh, nominated secretary of interior uh, is, is a uh, former representative from New Mexico. Um, could you talk about that and, and what that might mean having someone from New Mexico step into this national policy seat?
0: Yeah, it's been really exciting to watch Deb Holland and her political rise and mm-hmm. um, certainly since she's been representing New Mexico the past few years it's been um, it's been really interesting to see how her outlook on on things like water and social justice and environmental justice inform her work and i am really as a New Mexican, I am very excited to see that she was nominated as Interior Secretary. She has a, a strong understanding of the science of climate change, but she also has um, a very uh, personal and intimate understanding of what how climate change affects communities in the southwestern United States and a, and a history of And understanding the history of how indigenous people in the southwestern United States have weathered challenging climatic conditions historically and the importance of water. Um, And I think that that is really exciting. Um, She also has a strong understanding of the impacts of the oil and gas industry on communities native communities but but all sorts of communities in new mexico and what the public health impacts and what the environmental impacts of the oil and gas industry can be on the ground and also in terms of larger ground, greenhouse gas emissions issues um, one of the things you know, my first career was as an archaeologist and i worked as a as a tribal consultant also, and so I have like a pretty good understanding of how, how tribal consultation works in the United States as opposed to how it's supposed to work under mm-hmm. the spirit of the laws that, that guide that um, relationship. And um, I really feel like tribal consultation in the United States is not done Um, well or properly in the vast majority of the cases and we see that certainly here in the southwestern united states and holland has a strong understanding of why tribal consultation is important not just because you're supposed to include tribes in decisions that affect their communities and their futures but also because tribal communities have great input into Mm. you know helping shape projects and 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 shape the future. And so I think she would bring a stronger um, understanding. And also the, the Biden administration has issued an executive order on strengthening tribal consultation. But across the board, I think she is a very, she's intelligent and thoughtful. She's also an extremely compassionate and grounded person. And I just think for, for an agency like Interior to be led by somebody like Holland would be a watershed moment in mm. U.S. history.
1: Yeah, certainly historic to have an indigenous person in that role. It's very, very exciting. Absolutely, you mentioned a little while ago about uh, you know drilling and groundwater and fracking, and um, maybe for people you could explain how much of that industry has a has a presence in New Mexico and the impact it's had on groundwater. And then I've also seen a lot in the news over the past bunch of months about New Mexico's movement to try to get a better understanding and management of, uh, you know, the impacts on groundwater of that that drilling industry. So, about four or five questions in one there for you. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So our groundwater resources are really important, and and in many places imperiled, and that's due to. Due to all sorts of activities, agricultural pumping, um, cities pumping water, um, the military's contamination of groundwater in New Mexico is a huge deal. Um, so there are there's lots of different aspects to New Mexico's groundwater problems, but we do have two big. Um, areas of oil and gas development in New Mexico. The San Juan Basin in the northwestern part of the state is predominantly natural gas. And then the southeastern part of the state is part of the Permian Basin where there's a lot of oil development. And these are very water-intensive industries and activities. And unlike agricultural use where the water stays within the system. You know, we could talk about what's most efficient and what what kind of farming should happen in the Southwest. But it stays within, it stays relatively healthy within the hydrological cycle versus the oil and gas industry is, um, you know, using fresh water and then polluting that and leaving that water either in pits on the surface or reinjecting that polluted water into the ground so it's a it is a water intensive activity but it's very much a water polluting activity mm-hmm. where there that water can't be used for other things once it's been contaminated
1: sure and then, and then what are the pieces I've seen in the news recently about kind of some, some changes, proposed changes to try to better understand and I think re- regulate even um, what's happening there?
0: Yeah, so the Water Data Act, I think it was called, was passed a couple of years ago and is really this great statewide effort um, for all the different agencies and entities that collect water data to start talking the same language and using some of um, the same sorts of um, measurements and and data systems so that uh, basically um, we can have a better picture of our water resources in the state. Um, You know, I wish that we could have done something like that 20 or 30 years ago, but at least (laughs) we're starting now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask also since you've been covering the you know water and, and the environment there um, what are some of the positive things that jump out what are some of the success stories maybe that you've seen uh, obviously we've talked a lot about the challenges and the the doom and gloom and so forth but um, you know I'm sure there's been good stuff that's happened on on the waterfront
0: yeah one of the things I mean I love the water data act I think that was mm-hmm. a great step. Um, And the coalition that came around that, there are some really great examples in New Mexico of how people survive difficult times in terms of shortage sharing on the acequias or communities that come together to figure out ways that everybody still gets some water where people aren't cut off. Um, On the very local scale, there are great examples of that. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited about right now is the New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission, which is, um, I think it's nine people, and they're appointed by the governor, and, and they're supposed to be taking, you know, a statewide look at um, New Mexico's ability to comply with interstate compacts, but, you know, the they're not only focused on compact compliance, they're also focused on the environment and community and things like that. And traditionally, as I have covered the interstate stream commission, it's, it's almost always been dominated by agricultural interests Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, kind of older Anglo Mm -hmm. um, men Mm -hmm. (laughs) who are really focused oftentimes on just trying to make sure that their communities are served under this commission. And that's not that's not the case for every commissioner, but by and large, the commission as a whole. I think it's fair to say that. And we currently have this very diverse interstate stream commission. And I was sitting in on a water planning meeting yesterday. And some of the conversations that were occurring, honestly, just... I've been waiting almost 20 years to hear these conversations and um, talking about equity and talking about community level programs and what, what the state can learn from community level mm. programs. And I think that's really exciting. And I think it, it kind of reminds me of what New Mexico's biggest strength is always, is our diversity. What makes New Mexico such a special place is that we have 21 american indian tribes that we have you know spanish land grant communities and acequia communities and recent immigrants and um, our diversity really is our strength and our ability to think about resilient and sustainable paths forward so i think that's the thing i love best about new mexico even though we have these challenges that can seem overwhelming
1: Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Love it. I wanted to ask you last about kind of journalism itself. Um, you know, you've been a a journalist here working for, for 20 years. You're also a board member of the Society of Environmental Journalists, such an awesome, important organization. Um, uh, We've also seen over the past couple of decades unfortunately what's happened to traditional newsrooms, you know with just the huge cuts uh, to editorial staffs and kind of the fracturing of media and all this all this changing landscape um and then the public you know being caught up in lots of different issues so let's say what what have you found the public's appetite to be for for water issues right now?
0: I think that audiences love stories that are told in interesting ways right and i think sometimes what has happened with um daily news coverage and newspapers over the decades is we became so committed to telling um balanced stories Mm. or short stories or not not giving readers the benefit of the doubt and And understanding that readers actually do want context and they do want history. Um, I think we really undervalued, underappreciated readers and started kind of giving them stories that were not very interesting to read. And I think if you tell stories about complicated issues like water, that you should trust your audience enough to know that you can spend a couple of paragraphs giving them context. If you just kind of lay out these like this happened, this happened, this happened, this person said this thing, I don't want to read that story, even if I'm super interested in water. So I think that it's incumbent on journalists to, um, push back on their editors who think water stories are boring. If you tell good water stories, interesting water stories, people want to read them. A few years ago when I was, um, hired at New Mexico Political Report. Um, I was so lucky. I had a statewide environment beat and really the freedom to cover any environment stories that I was interested in or I thought were important. And kind of the expectation was, was kind of like, we think the environment is a really important beat and we're gonna hire you with the expectation that we know your stories probably won't get a lot of clicks but that's okay because they're important. And what ended up happening was those stories were consistently among the highest read. And I think, I just think we really have to believe in our audiences and give them an interesting story to read that helps them understand the world around them better.
1: Yeah. Uh, The uh, getting to the idea that that traditional outlets have kind of been scaled back and, and a lot of them, Dropped environmental reporters. You know that was part of the part of the collateral damage. I guess. Um, how would you describe the way that the the journalism universe has kind of filled that void?
0: That's a good question. I think. It really, you know, it was so exciting. Was it probably in the late 90s where you saw more and more outlets having an environment reporter and having Mm -hmm. that dedicated beat? And the fact that that was one of the first things that was cut as newspapers started cutting resources and cutting staff was really discouraging. And really what has kind of filled the gap is the nonprofit media model um, where you're relying on grants or reader donations um, um and there is you know there's foundation support for that but you know that comes and goes and waves and so that's how that's like a scary model to rely on in the long term as well but i think that i always try to like i always try to um think about reporting and and storytelling in terms of like if, you're, if you can maybe just like encourage or inspire other reporters who might be on like the business beat or the local politics beat to like cast a little glance over at environment, climate and think about how they can incorporate that into their stories. It's the environment isn't an exclusive beat and shouldn't be an exclusive beat. And I think these are the types of stories that can be told with, you know, sort of great interest and joy. And um, these are stories that involve people and complicated, weird, interesting (laughs) dynamics. And I don't know, I think we could have a little bit more fun when reporting sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think certainly a lot of fun to be had reporting on the environment in New Mexico, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I've been you know, seeing all your stuff on social media for a long time, like I said, huge huge New Mexico fan. Um, so I'm, I'm glad for the chance to catch up and chat about some of these some of these topics. Thank you, Laura.
0: Thank you so much, Travis. I appreciate it.
1: Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.